So thank you for the invitation and thank you all for coming. Um, so as Angela mentioned, I'm trained as a social epidemiologist, which basically means that um, we're interested in looking at the social determinants of health. And in that framework, I'm especially interested in looking at sort of how the broader environment, whether it be the policy environment or macroeconomic environment or social environment, influences health and health disparities. Um, I've also spent quite a bit of time living and working overseas. And um, through that, um, first in Peace Corps and then through various public health projects, I really spent a lot of time thinking about how large global processes uh, impact health. And one area where there's currently a lot of change is non-communicable disease risk or chronic disease risk. Um, and there's a great increase in low and middle income countries. And so the work that I'm presenting today sort of brings those two pieces together. So um, over the past several years, there's been sort of an increasing dialogue about the social determinants of health worldwide. And in 2008, the World Health Organization's Commission on the Social Determinants of Health sort of put out this framework. Um, and so over on the left-hand side, you can see that um, first we're looking at the larger socioeconomic and political environment and how governance and policy and cultural and societal norms are influencing things further downstream, including social position, your material circumstances, behaviors, biological factors, and then how th all of that contributes to the distribution of health and well-being in a society. And you'll notice that it's not a one-way street. There's um, feedback loops throughout and um, consequences downstream for upstream and upstream for downstream. So um, as I mentioned, there's a big shift happening globally in how diseases are distributed. And um, just in um, the summer of last year, the Global Burden of Disease study released uh, results comparing work that they had done in 1990 um, to sort of the distribution of um, mortality and other figures in 2010. Has anybody heard of the Global Burden of Disease study? So a few people have. So basically, um, on the left-hand side, we have a ranking of um, basically global mortality um, in 1990 then compared to 2010. So in 1990, we see that even then, ischemic heart disease and stroke were the top two causes of death uh, worldwide, but there were also important infectious uh, causes, including lower respiratory infections and diarrhea. Um, but by 2010, four out of the top five causes of death worldwide were non-communicable diseases. And um, so in fact, ischemic heart disease is the number one, or within the top five causes of death, in all regions of the world except for Sub-Saharan Africa. And stroke is within the top 10 causes of death in all regions except um, Western, Central, and Eastern Sub-Saharan Africa. So this, uh, the next two slides are also taken from the Global Burden of Disease Study, but here we're looking at risk factors um, can, that contribute to disability-adjusted life years. And that's a measure that the Global Burden of Disease Study came up with as sort of a summary po um, population health metric. And it's calculated by taking the years of life lost due to early mortality and adding in um, the years due to disability that you're living with a condition. 
So these data are from uh, 1990, and you can see the childhood underweight um, and suboptimal breastfeeding and household air pollution were major uh, risk factors for disability-adjusted life years, and the pink bars uh, represent infectious causes of disease. So there were still many important infectious causes of disease. Um, but tobacco smoking, high blood pressure, and alcohol use were also near the top. And the sort of lighter blue is, um, represents cardiovascular disease, and the dark blue represents cancers. So these were from 1990. But by 2000, you can see that um, the top five or six are all um, non-communicable disease risk factors. So we're seeing this transition towards a much higher burden of non-communicable disease risk factors and mortality from those diseases. Nancy, can you just say a word about the coloring? Yeah, so they represent different disease outcomes, basically, that, are, that those risk factors contribute to. So the, the blue, um, the lighter blue, this one is cardiovascular disease, and the darker blue is cancers. And then the pink, which we saw more on the other one, um, like at the top is common infectious outcomes. So we can see from uh, these studies and from other studies that non-communicable diseases are the leading cause of death worldwide, and this is only projected to increase. And um, even though they're traditionally thought of as diseases of the affluent, we can see that there is a very large burden in low- and middle-income countries, and that's where actually the greatest increase is being seen. And so here's just another uh, example of that. And I think some of you have seen the world mapper maps before, where they inflate or deflate countries based on um, a particular outcome. So here is all cardiovascular disease deaths. So you can see the US and Western Europe, high income countries have a high burden of cardiovascular disease deaths. But India and China are becoming overwhelmed by it, not just because of their population size, but because there's a, a great burden in those countries, as well as Eastern Europe and even parts of Northern Africa. I mean, they're just different colors for the, the countries. Oh, right. Yeah, the color doesn't see, represent see, anything. Um, Central and South America are kind of skinny. Yeah, they're kind of skinny. So it's partially because their populations are smaller, okay. um, and then also because it's, they don't have as many deaths. But it, these are the total number of deaths, so. So all of this sort of uh, fits into the traditional epidemiologic transition theory, where as countries become sort of more developed, you see a transition from mortality rates of infectious disease um, decreasing, and then um, mortality rates from non-communicable diseases increasing. But there are many factors that are influencing this transition globally. Um, it's not necessarily a smooth transition from one to the other. There are many countries that have a double burden of both non-communicable and infectious diseases. Um, there's, and through the processes of globalization and urbanization, um, the world is changing very quickly. Um, and so it's not a sort of a long transition. It's happening much faster in low and middle income countries. And there are also a number of global trends that are sort of in the background, um, including a global aging population that's aging, 
the nutrition transition, uh, which in the nutrition center, how, how many people have heard about that? So many people. And then, so that's basically a transition from um, sort of more traditional diets to diets higher in fat, sugar, and salt. Um, and then also a physical activity transition. And then what I was interested in looking at is to see if there's also a social transition happening. So with globalization, we see that there are, um, there's almost no barriers anymore. There are tobacco products all over the world. Um, companies from high in income countries are dispersing their products worldwide through fast food and other mechanisms. Also, the world is very quickly urbanizing. So um, as of 2008, more than half of the world's population was living in urban areas. And by 2030, 80% of the population, of the urban population will be in low and middle income countries. So along with this, I mentioned that the um, global population is aging. So uh, we can see in these lighter blue bars that uh, in the less developed region that um, the population age 60 or over is um, set to increase from about 8% now to about 20% by 2050. And the same is true in more developed regions. But the growth rate of the population um, for people age 60 or over is highest in the um, least developed countries. And then in the more developed regions, it's actually starting to decrease, which contributes to um, a higher proportion of the world's population 60 or over in the more, less developed regions of the world. So as I mentioned, um, the nutrition transition and physical activity transition are also important components to think about, um, leading to increased consumption of processed foods, um, and also for the physical activity transition, there's also some evidence that people are living more um, sedentary lifestyles, um, both through their work and through their leisure time activities. And so I was interested in looking at whether there was a social transition of this risk as well. And so, um, in, so let me just point out this graph because I'll show you more like this later on. But along the x-axis, we have socioeconomic position. So higher socioeconomic position on the right-hand side. And on the y-axis, we have non-communicable disease risk. So a higher risk um, at the top. And so in high-income countries, we typically see what we call in social epidemiology an inverse social gradient. So those of higher socioeconomic status have lower uh, non-communicable disease risk. And so when I was thinking about this initially, I thought that, well, in middle-income countries where there's a lot of transitions going on, we might not see any socioeconomic patterning at all. So it might be regardless of socioeconomic status, people will have the same non-communicable disease risk. And in low-income countries, we might see the opposite um, pattern, a positive gradient, so that those of higher socioeconomic um, position would have higher chronic disease risk. And that would be consistent with what happened in the US a couple of generations ago, which was basically that people of higher socioeconomic status were the first people to sort of start smoking and um, have, be able to buy processed foods and that sort of thing. And their um, risk for chronic diseases was higher. 
So the goals of my research um, were to look at the differences in socioeconomic patterning of this non-communicable disease risk and to see if the patterning varied by urban ethnicity and development, um, both within and between countries. And so today I'll present you results um, from two papers, looking one looking across countries and another looking within one middle-income country. So if we go back to that um, WHO framework, um, what I'm looking at is how the broader environment um, measured by urbanicity uh, affects the distribution of non-communicable disease risk by education and by gender. So the first um, paper is looking at inequalities in BMI and smoking um, in 70 countries, and this was published in the American Journal of Epidemiology last year. So specifically in this um, paper, I was looking at sex-specific differences across countries in the socioeconomic patterning of BMI and smoking, and to see whether these associations um, could be explained by country-level urbanicity. And to do this, I used data from the World Health Surveys, which were population-based surveys conducted by the WHO uh, between 2002 and 2003. And they were in 70 countries at all levels of development. So BMI was calculated from self-reported height and weight, and current smoking um, was assessed with the question, do you currently smoke any tobacco products? So BMI was available for all 70 countries, and smoking was available for 53 countries. So for my marker of socioeconomic position, I looked at education, uh, which was defined as the total number of years of formal education completed, and I measured that per standard deviation. And then my broader um, marker, I used country-level urbanicity, which was defined as the percentage of the mid-year population living in urban areas in each country. So my analysis for this project had three steps. So first, I ran um, regression models uh, in each country for BMI and smoking separately, and I adjusted for age um, and stratified by sex. And all of these surveys um, used a complex survey design, so I also took that into account in the analysis. So then I conducted um, a meta-analysis to see if there were differences between the um, risk factor um, and education by country. And I'll show you a number of forest plots for those results. And then I used meta-regression to see if the differences between the countries could be explained by country-level urbanicity. So this is the first of the forest plots. So have people seen meta-analytic results before? Some people have, some people haven't. Okay, so I'll sort of walk you through. So basically what we have here is all 70 countries, and they're um, in order of increasing urbanicity, so the least urban at the top and the most urban at the bottom. And then each little square is a point estimate for that country. And the lines, the horizontal lines, are the 95% confidence intervals. So basically, you have 70 regressions here. Um, the mean difference, so the, this plot is looking at the mean difference in BMI for men. So our null value is zero, or no difference in the mean. So um, for the countries that have um, a point estimate to the right of that line, it means that those of higher education had higher mean BMI. 
And for those countries with estimates to the left, it means those of higher education have lower mean BMI. So you can see that in the least urban countries, the ones at the top, um, the patterns were mostly that the men of higher education had higher mean BMI. And then as countries became more urban, we see a bit of a shift um, so that there are more estimates to the left of the line, so those of higher education having lower mean BMI. And when I um, conducted the meta-regression to see if country-level urbanicity could explain that, I found that there was a trend. So as urbanicity um, increased, we saw a shift from those of higher education having higher mean BMI to those of lower education having, or higher education having lower mean BMI. So this is uh, a result for, for the women. So again, we see a very similar pattern but it's actually um, stronger. So again, we see that those of higher education had higher mean BMI in the least urban countries, um, but then the transition is sort of faster and stronger so that by the time we're in the more urban countries, those of higher education have lower mean BMI. And when I ran the meta-regression, um, we saw that result as well. So the next two plots are for um, smoking. So now we're looking at odds ratios. So our null value is one instead of zero, um, but the same directions apply. So here we're looking at um, the odds ratios of smoking for men. And we see that um, most of the point estimates are to the left of the line, which means um, men of higher education had lower odds of smoking. And in fact, when I ran the meta-regression, I did not see any relationship, any change um, between that relationship, regardless of country-level urbanicity. For women, it was a bit different. So like men in the least urban countries, um, women of higher education had lower odds of smoking. But actually, as countries um, had more middle levels of urbanicity, um, that pattern was different. There was a lot more heterogeneity and in fact, um, many positive relationships. So women of higher education had higher um, odds of smoking in some of these more urban countries. And when I ran the meta-regression, I found that that um, sort of relationship was true, so that as urbanicity increased, the um, patterns changed. So um, for BMI, we saw some evidence for a social transition where there was a shift from people of higher education having higher mean BMI to those of higher education having lower mean BMI as urbanicity increased. And those results were stronger for women than for men. Um, for smoking, uh, for men, that we saw that um, smoking was already concentrated among those of lower education, regardless of country-level urbanicity. But for women, we saw that there was more variation um, and that those of higher education had lower prevalence of smoking in the least urban countries, but that the gradient was more positive with higher urbanicity. So um, when I was thinking about these results, um, I think an important thing to remember is that obesity is sort of a, a newer global epidemic than tobacco. Um, and um, the transition that we saw 
although we saw it for both men and women, was stronger for women across these countries. And you can think that as um, countries are becoming more urban, that they're th the ones who are going through things like the nutrition transition and the physical activity transition first. So people living in the more urban areas are the ones who are going to have access to more processed foods, who are more likely to be working in areas where they're sitting at desks and commuting in cars versus um, more of like an agriculture society. So we also saw some gender differences, and this could be due um, to a variety of things. It could be because um, body image ideals are being transmitted through the processes of globalization and urbanization. So whereby women, in particular, consider body sizes, smaller body sizes, to be more desirable. Um, it got, we could also be seeing a case of weight discrimination, which we've seen um, in high-income countries, so that people of higher weight are sort of selected into lower socioeconomic position. Um, the tobacco epidemic um, has been described uh, in various stages. Um, so in the first stage, men start smoking, and those rates increase in the second stage, start to decrease in the third and fourth stages. Females, typically in a given society, um, start smoking later, and they don't reach as high of a prevalence as men. Um, and then the deaths from smoking are lagged due to the disease processes, particularly related to cancer and cardiovascular disease. So countries that have been described in the, in the fourth stage are mostly the high-income countries um, and sort of working down through the stages of development to the least um, developed countries in sub-Saharan Africa where there is still relatively low um, smoking prevalence. So um, recall that for men, we did not see any difference by urbanicity in the relationship between education and, and smoking. And um, this could be um, because men have been smoking longer and are typically heavier smokers than any society. And we would expect that men would go through a social transition first. Um, we did see some null or positive findings, and those were especially in sub-Saharan Africa. And that's possible that it represents a leg in the transition um, due to being in the earlier stages of the epidemic. Uh, for women, we saw that women of higher education had a higher odds of smoking in urban areas. Um, and this could be because women in higher social classes might have more access to be able to buy these products. Um, it could also be sort of a marker of equality for women or women having more um, sort of fewer restrictions on their behavior. Uh, it's also possible that tobacco marketing is playing a role here. So I know in some of the middle income countries, um, there's been marketing to um, promote tobacco as a weight control product, just as there was years ago in the US. Um, so that could play a factor as well. Um, and then we saw that higher education had lower odds of smoking for women in the least urban countries. And that was the same pattern that we saw for men, although uh, when I first saw those results, I was a, a bit confused by them. <laughs> um, so some possible explanations are that uh, these women are smoking more traditional forms of tobacco. Um, it could also be that um, smuggling is leading to cheaper tobacco products 
that are more accessible to those of lower socioeconomic position, or that um, once people start smoking and become addicted, that they're spending their income on cigarettes and staying in a lower socioeconomic position. So in general, we see that countries seem to be transitioning to a concentration of worse BMI among those of lower socioeconomic position as countries become more urban. Um, for smoking, however, um, we saw that it was already concentrated among those of lower socioeconomic position, especially for men, although with women we saw um, some heterogeneity in those results. So that was taking a very broad global view, um, looking across many different countries. And um, so I was interested in also seeing if the same patterns were holding true within um, countries. And so here I looked at um, socioeconomic gradients in Argentina, which is a middle income country. And this paper was published in the American Journal of Public Health uh, a couple of years ago. So for this analysis, I was interested in looking at the differences in social patterning of communicable disease risk factors. And today I'll show you results for BMI, diabetes, and a diet marker, um, and seeing if that was different according to urbanicity within one middle-income country. So Argentina is in the southern cone of Latin America, and in 2001 there were 36 million people living there and it has 23 provinces and one autonomous city of Buenos Aires. So for this study, I used data from the 2005 National Survey of Risk Factors of Non-Communicable Diseases, and um, that was the first time that this survey was done in Argentina. It's been done, conducted one other time since then, but it's very similar to the BRFSS survey that we um, conduct in the States. So it's a population-based survey of adults 18 and older, and there were more than 40,000 participants. So here um, I'm going to show you results for BMI, which was um, from questions, self-reported height and weight, uh, diabetes, which was a self-reported doctor diagnosis, similar to what we have in the States, and then a measure of diet, um, fruit and vegetable intake, which was measured as eating um, fruits um, and vegetables at least five days a week. And again, I'll show you results for education. So the contextual variable, again, is looking at urbanicity. So now it's um, the level of urbanicity per province. So there were 23 provinces plus the city of Buenos Aires. So here I um, modeled each risk factor separately, and again I stratified by sex and adjusted for age. And then I used generalized estimating equations um, to account for the within-province correlation of the risk factors. And in the first model, I mutually adjusted for urbanicity and education, and in the second model, I included a um, an interaction term between the two. And then I'll show you graphs of predicted means and probabilities. And again, um, this used a complex survey design, so I accounted for that in the analysis. So there were a few more women than men who participated. Uh, the mean age of the uh, people in the study sample is about 40, between 40 and 45. Um, about a third of the sample uh, did not have go beyond primary education. 
And then um, here's our marker of urbanicity, and you can see that in general, Argentina is very urban. So the mean um, percent urban per province was about 85%. So BMI, um, men had a mean BMI of 26.4 and women of 25. Um, diabetes was about 12% in each group and then um, fruit and vegetable intake was relatively low, 25% for men and 35% for women. So here are the regression results, um, looking at the socioeconomic patterning of BMI, diabetes, and fruit and vegetable intake. So we can see that um, for men, men of higher education had a lower odds of having uh, diabetes, and men of higher education had higher odds of consuming fruits and vegetables. Uh, for women, uh, we saw similar patterns. Those of higher education had lower um, mean BMI, um, lower odds of diabetes, and then higher odds of fruit and vegetable intake. So with the exception of um, men and BMI, we see basically these inverse gradients, so higher education, lower risk. Um, and then when we, we looked at the, sort of the interaction between education and urbanicity, we found that there were important um, interaction for almost all of the outcomes um, for men and for women. So here um, I'll show you a series of graphs that are sort of similar to the initial one I showed you where we have um, socioeconomic position on the x-axis and then our risk factor on the y-axis. And then the lines represent um, the different levels of urbanicity. So the most urban is represented by the red squares, um, and the least urban areas are represented by the blue triangles. So in the upper left-hand corner, we have predicted mean BMI for men by percentile of education. So if you look at the blue line, we see um, basically a positive gradient, right? So those men of higher education had higher mean BMI, and that was in the least urban areas. But in the, if we look at the red line, in the most urban areas, we see uh, an inverse gradient. So men of higher education had um, lower mean BMI. And for women, you can see that regardless of urbanicity, as we saw in the results, women of higher education had lower mean BMI. But actually, that gradient is strongest in the most urban areas. So um, again, as urbanicity increased, the social gradient changed for men, um, whereby those of highest education had highest BMI to those of lowest education having the highest BMI as urbanicity increased. But for women, it was an inverse gradient across the board, although it was stronger with um, increasing urbanicity. And here are the results for diabetes. So, for men, we see something similar to what we saw with BMI, right? So that in um, the most urban areas, we have this steeper inverse gradient. So those of higher um, education had lower probability of diabetes. Um, and although there is a bit of an inverse gradient in the least urban areas, it's much stronger in the more urban areas. 
And for women, again, we see inverse gradients across the board, although it's strongest in the most urban areas. So again, men and women have inverse gradients across all levels of urbanicity, um, but the, the gradients actually widen. So as the province becomes more urban, um, the, the gradient is steeper. And then for fruit and vegetable intake, um, so recall here that higher fruit and vegetable intake is desirable. Um, so uh, for men, the, those of higher education had higher fruit and vegetable intake, although that pattern was actually strongest in the least urban areas. Um, and for women, there was no real important interaction. Um, basically, regardless of level of urbanicity, those of higher education had higher fruit and vegetable intake. So again, here we saw the important interaction for men, but not for women, and that the inverse gradient was actually stronger in the least urban areas. So in general, we saw that men um, transition from more from a positive or no social gradient in the least urban areas um, to inverse gradients in more urban areas uh, for BMI, diabetes, and fruit and vegetable intake. And women across the board showed strong inverse um, social gradients for all three of these risk factors, regardless of urbanicity, although the gradients were often strongest in most urban areas. So even though Argentina is a middle-income country, I think it really represents um, this maturing of non-communicable disease risk um, in middle-income countries and in, in Latin America. Um, so although people of higher socioeconomic status were probably the first to adopt sort of these higher-risk lifestyles, um, they've begun to adjust and are probably now the early responders to prevention messages and have wherewithal to um, change their behavior and their environment um, to lower their risk. And it's also likely that people in urban areas are the first to get these sorts of messages. So in Argentina as a whole, the non-communicable disease risk factors showed in inverse gradients for women, um, but less so for men, although as in the more urban areas, um, we saw that those gradients developed. Um, so this, since we see these differences actually across different areas of urbanicity, um, it implies that these patterns aren't stagnant, that they are potentially modifiable. Um, so it's important to think about policies and social processes that are affecting the changes in these patterns. And I think this is particularly important for Latin America, which is a very urban area and becoming more urban, um, that it's also at increased danger of having increasing inequalities and non-communicable disease risk. So what are sort of the broader implications of this work? So um, both within a middle-income country and then across countries at different levels of urbanicity, we saw some evidence for social transition where 
non-communicable disease risk is becoming increasingly concentrated among those of lower socioeconomic position. Um, but these patterns are not the same across countries, and it's possible that um, they can be modified. So in particular, low and middle income countries are um, increasingly susceptible to, to the, the um, detriments of non-communicable disease risk, although in many of these countries, their health systems are still focused on infectious disease, and they're not uh, really prepared to deal with this larger burden of non-communicable disease risk. So within that context, I think it's important to think about policies to um, address both non-communicable disease risk and policies to address these disparities. So in tobacco control, there's a whole host of policies that have been put into place, and um, there's sort of stronger um, movement about, uh, around this with the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, and many countries around the world are implementing these policies. Um, but there are very few policies um, that have been shown to actually target inequalities. Um, Taxation is one that is potentially helps sort of um, lessen the, the gradient, um, but there's not been a lot of work on that um, in low and middle income countries. And for obesity, there are very few population level policies that have actually been tried. You know, there are some places in the states and other areas that have tried things like banning trans fats, and there's urban planning initiatives, and then there's also discussion about taxing soda and things of that sort. Um, but it's not clear if these policies will work in the same way that they do for tobacco, and then also how these policies would impact uh, inequalities. So along with policies that are specifically targeted for non-communicable disease risk, I think it's also important to um, keep in mind the underlying causes of health disparities. So even though we're seeing sort of this transition um, to an increased burden of non-communicable disease risk among those of lower socioeconomic position um, as countries become more urban and more developed, this is not sort of an anomaly. This is what's happened for all diseases over time. Um, so, in order to s reduce inequalities, not just in non-communicable disease risk, but all health outcomes, it's important to keep in mind social policies that are going to be able to address um, equality, so equal access to education and um, wealth and income policies that help distribute um, those things more equitably. So thank you very much for your attention, and I'd be happy to take any questions. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of urbanization, have you thought about looking at the countries that are newly urbanized versus, you know, middle Europe that's you know, been urbanized for for many, you know, this idea of building environments for cars versus building environments for walking and walking? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important point, like countries that have sort of already gone through these processes of urbanization have a much more sort of laid out framework. So they have, you know, narrow streets that you can't, that only so many cars can go down. But then as countries are rapidly urbanizing, um, 
they have to make decisions about um, policies. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, I haven't done any work looking at that specifically, but I think that especially as countries are rapidly urbanizing, I think an issue is that there are not often um, good planning initiatives that go along with that. <laughs> and so they're probably creating environments that are going to be very non-conducive to healthy um, weight and things like that. So yeah, that's a good point. Yep, interesting to think about. Have you thought at all about sticking in kind of indicators of income inequality? I, I have, <laughs> a little bit. I mean, there's, there's definitely been work done looking at income inequality in a variety of, um, of outcomes. I don't think that there's been a big focus, especially in low and middle income countries, on non-communicable disease risk per se, um, although I have been working with colleagues in Argentina looking at income inequality in Argentina and um, self-rated health. Um, but not necessarily non-communicable disease risks. So. so, you think you could stick an indicator of income inequality in these models and uh, kind of see what would happen? It, like if it would affect the urbanization? Yeah. Um, so yeah, certainly. Urbanization, yeah, yeah, certainly. Yep. And. Because that's the that's the implication of the social policy kind of. Function well, one of them. Yep. That if in more equal societies, that potentially we would not see these factors being driven. And I think that it would actually be really interesting to do it in some place like Brazil, which has sort of overcome a lot of its inequality in recent years. It's not, you know, the most equitable place, but it's certainly been improving to see. So in that natural experiment as um, it's becoming more equitable, if that's impacting it at all. In the U.S. right now, yes. yeah, it's a high right? I mean, I, I think that there wouldn't be a lot of variability because it's sort of more of a stable environment. Like in high-income countries in general, we mostly see inverse gradients. So, I mean, that's there has been some variation that's shown, um, especially in certain race ethnic groups, um, but. I don't think that there would be a lot of variability, even if you were looking, for instance, across states. Right. I mean, I, I, I think that they would still be inverse associations regardless of urbanicity. I mean, it could be that in the more rural areas, you know, especially if people are sort of living um, in states that still have a lot of agriculture in them, that th you could see some differences there. Um, but otherwise, I think that it would still be pretty, pretty much inverse associations. Thank you. Appreciate